Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTB. This week's message is brought to us by teaching team member Ricky Padilla. He is preaching from James chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. In a theology course in Atlanta at a prestigious university, a group of seminarians, students majoring in theology, biblical and pastoral studies, took up a subject that their professor had been expecting to come up, their frustrations with their church backgrounds. Some had come from evangelicalism, others from mainline Christian traditions, several were students of color. They shared stories about how the traditions they'd inherited were inadequate to face the injustices of the world. They thought Christianity, as it had been introduced to them, lacked what was needed to undo violence and the suffering it creates. They were disenchanted with the faith. Their professor let them say their piece. The next week, when they returned to class, the professor started their session by telling the story of his grandmother. The story I heard was that she was a conservative woman of faith, a prayer warrior, a real lover of Jesus. The professor didn't lay it on thick. He did not romanticize the story with flowery adjectives and superlatives. He simply told the story of an everyday Christian. It was how he finished the anecdote that so moved one of the students that the student then felt the need to tell me the story several days later. After saying a few words about his grandmother, the professor concluded his story with this. Don't forget that your grandmother's faith was good enough to get you here. In 1951, my grandmother, mi abuelita Regina, led our family on a pilgrimage from Puerto Rico to a neighborhood in New York City called Washington Heights. As a child, I thought this move was voluntary, motivated by big city sueñitos, dreams. In truth, my family was one of thousands pressured to leave the island in the late 40s and 50s as collateral to ensure the success of Operation Bootstrap, which was a series of industrialization campaigns initiated by the U.S. government as they started their supposed vision of progress on the island of Puerto Rico. In the late 60s, after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., because of reasonable fear for the safety of their Afro-Puerto Rican children, my grandparents returned to Puerto Rico. And then from there, they returned to the U.S. in the late 80s. Abuela Regina always imagined they'd make enough money in the U.S. to return permanently to her beloved island. She never intended to stay in the U.S., but in the roughly 40 years since, she's buried two children, seen a grandchild incarcerated for life. She's been a widow for nearly 15 years, has faced prejudices of all kinds, experienced multiple natural disasters and crippling poverty. And yet collecting it all together, she counts her life a joy recently telling me that she has been richly blessed by the Lord. How could she read her life this way, even after all of that suffering? 
How could she thank her beloved Jesus in the face of injustice and prejudice that has kept her and her family trapped in patterns of struggle? What kind of faith is this that is good enough for me to be here? These were the questions I kept returning to when I looked at this morning's passage. As I reflected on James chapter 1, I wondered at the mystery of what some theologians have called redemptive suffering. Should we celebrate suffering as good? What kind of faith tells the story of suffering with expressed hints of joy? How might we, the inheritors of our abuelas and abuelos' stories of migration, oppression, injustice, and hurt, navigate today's trials in a way that honors their legacy? James 1 is written like a grandfather's answer directly to these concerns. James, the half-brother of our very Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, opens his letter to the scattered church facing oppression and threat, trial and suffering by summarizing his wisdom concerning these things. If you haven't already, please turn with me to James chapter 1 as we hear the Lord's wisdom in the voice of an elder. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We'll stop there for now. Like the enigma of Abuela Regina's faith and the faith of these students, and the faith that these students in Atlanta struggled with, Abuelo James, that's what we'll call him today, Grandpa James, begins his letter with a command that most of us as young readers find uncomfortable. We feel uneasy about it. He starts his letter with a command. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if, when. There's no doubt that Christians, like anybody else, will face real trials, real suffering. But it's the first part of the command that drives us nuts. Count it all joy. This is the very thing that bothers us in the first place. Some of the trials we see and or face, some of the suffering and trauma that we carry, some of it was wrong. Evil even. Count it all joy? Why? When some of these trials are wretched, this is the first question James answers. Why did our grandparents, why should we count it all joy? James' answer comes swift, as if he knows in advance we're going to forget what we already know. Why should we count trials, why should we count suffering our joy? Because of what we know. Look at verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
because we know that trials, that suffering is productive. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I'm not making a value judgment just yet. I'm not saying yet that this is either good or bad. I am just saying a truth that we all know. Suffering produces. It has a byproduct. Let me give you an example. In 1987, centuries after brutal wars and racist land grabs produced the borders between the U.S. and Mexico, cultural critic Gloria Saldúa wrote a book called Borderlands, La Frontera, in which she describes the worldview of a new mestiza, mestizo, or in English, mixed people. According to Ansaldúa, the mestiza is born of una herida abierta, an open wound caused by a clash, el choque, between the many aspiring colonizers and the indigenous people. The children born of this clash, says Ansaldúa, develop a unique sense, a sixth sense, that gives them the ability to see patterns of pain and violence, to anticipate where things might hurt. This sense is precisely what makes these people born of trauma gifted mediators in a world still plagued by racial conflict. According to Ansaldúa, suffering produced the mestiza mediator. Let me give you another example. In his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, the great black theologian James Cone wondered, how could it be that black people who experienced slavery and Jim Crow discrimination, lynching of the worst kind, continued to struggle in faith for their freedom? How could that be? He goes on to tell the story of Mammy Till Bradley, the mother of Emmett Till, the 14-year-old boy from black boy from Chicago who was brutally and wrongfully killed by white men while visiting family in Mississippi. According to reports, Mammy Till insisted that her son's casket be open for a three-day viewing, quote, exposing his battered, bloated corpse so that everybody can see what they had done to her boy. She is said to have prayed in front of everyone in earshot, Lord, you gave your son to remedy a condition but who knows? But what the death of my only son might bring an end to lynching. Directing her words to her deceased son, she said, Darling, you have not died in vain. And directing herself to the thousands of people who attended his funeral, she said, This is not for Emmett, because my boy can't be helped now. This is to make America safe for other black boys. Mammy Till's actions and words were the catalyst that set ablaze the civil rights movement. Her faith in the midst of her deep suffering was productive. Three months after Emmett's funeral, Rosa Parks would refuse to give up her seat in a Montgomery bus. Black people who had every reason to avoid conflict with white supremacist mobs, gained the endurance needed to fight a good fight. Suffering was productive. James encourages his readers to count their trials, trials of all kinds, as part of their joy because of what they know. They know that trials steal us up. Faith maintained in suffering 
Faith that is tested endures. Verse 4 tells us something about this enduring faith. If we let it do its work, it makes us whole. Verse 4, and let your steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, before we go forward, let me tell you, my first attempts at ministry, if y'all could leave the verse up for just another moment. My first attempts at ministry were actually in hip-hop, reggaeton. I did a little spoken word in English. I was trying to be one of those Christian rappers, all in Spanish. Let me tell you, the other day I tried to rap to one of my own songs. I almost passed out. I don't have the lungs for it anymore. I got to do some cardio. But the reason I tell you that is because I learned some poetic techniques because of that time as a rapper. And this verse has something from poetry that is really, really powerful. It has something called the hendiades. It's when you take two really big words, concepts, and you tie them together with an and to reinforce an even more profound and more significant idea. We live with these all over the place. Grace and truth, love and peace, right? All these ands that we hear, these couplets that roam around us. James introduces one here. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Hendiades, a poetic mechanism to tell us that these trials that we face, the suffering that we experience, if we let it do its work, in other words, if we plant our flag, hold on and endure like Mammy Till, like MLK, like Rosa Parks, what we will find on the other end is a new kind of wholeness. And black people have been teaching us this for years, y'all. Their steadfastness, their endurance. Our African-American brothers and sisters have hung on to show us a whole different kind of church. What MLK called the beloved community. A community made whole. African-American theologian Willie Jennings says this about what, we, what this verse describes. He says this. Hope is not established through progress read over time. Progress is established through hope deepening over time. In other words, we don't have hope because things are getting better over time. Things are getting better because we have hoped and hoped and hoped and hoped and continue to hope, deepening our faith and hope no matter how severe the struggle, things get better because we hope, not the other way around. But this only describes the end of the story, the product. If we endure to the end, our joy is made complete. We find a new kind of wholeness. But what about now? But we're in it. How do we navigate the trials that we now face? in the same way that our elders have before. We've been told why, now we need to know how. And James, of course, answers that question too. Verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. 
But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Verse 4 ended by telling us that if we endure, we will lack nothing. Verse 5 tells us, the only thing you will lack, you will receive from the Lord if you ask. And that is wisdom. The reason this is the one thing we need to ask for perpetually is because wisdom, unlike just knowledge or facts or strategies and techniques, wisdom is something that is specific to our moment, to our place. It's contextual. You know, I I think about this all the time in relation to my wife. She's a nurse in the ICU. She tells me all the time these stories where something is going on and the ways that the manuals and systems of the hospitals work, it would suggest we need to do da, 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 right? And there's this sort of step and sequence. And yet the nurses and the doctors, as they come together and talk it over, they realize, they, they have an intuition. What we really need to do is this to care for the person. The methods don't quite give them that answer. There's something they've gained through practice and experience. There's a kind of knowledge they have in their hands, in the everyday care and encounter with the patient. They know something that a book can't tell them. Wisdom is that kind of knowledge. It's a kind of tacit knowledge. It's something that we know in our hands and in our bodies. Wisdom is something that requires discerning for a specific day, for a specific moment. In a specific time, that is why even as we endure trials and suffering, we have to ask the Lord for wisdom because our trials, our suffering today is certainly not the trials and suffering of our parents or our parents' parents or our great-grandparents before that. Our suffering is of a different kind in a different age. And so we have to ask the Lord for wisdom, for this moment. And the scriptures tell us the Lord isn't some God that's testing you violently, abusively. God is not an abusive father. In fact, we'll get to this a little bit later, but the reason black people are so committed to the faith, the reason they endure so much is because of the remarkable solidarity of God. You know, my name is Emmanuel. I can never forget this truth. God is with us in our struggles. And it is because of that that we can endure. We'll go back to that idea in a minute. But this God that is with us, James tells us, is more than willing. He will generously give without reproach. This God is more than happy to help us discern our way through our struggles. That's why James is so worried about the double-minded. The double-minded person who doesn't really believe, who doesn't really know that God is, number one, radically in solidarity with them. And number two, that God is utterly love, essentially love, willing to give generously to those who ask. How do we navigate our trials in the same way 
that our grandparents and our great-grandparents have managed their suffering? How do we have the kind of faith of Mammy Till or Abuela Regina? The answer, according to the text, is that we seek the Lord for wisdom to discern what to do in our day, in our moments, facing our struggles. James knows, though, that this is not easy. In fact, he anticipates that we might need to make some shifts. He's told us why our elders have been able to count it all joy and endure in faith. He told us how we could do the same. But now he's going to poke at us a little bit and tell us to do this. You have to think about where it is you're starting from. How, why, where? Where it is you're starting from? What shift you need to make? Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. I love this passage. Because it demonstrates that the gospel does two works for two different kinds of people. For the poor, for those crippled under oppression, for those maimed, hurting, the weak, the low. Scripture tells us, James tells us, that the gospel does such a work that they are exalted, risen up. James Cone, who tells the story of Mammy Till, he says that one thing that theology, that the gospel has done for black people, it has told them that you are not what the world says of you. That you are indeed people made in the image of God. That you indeed have dignity worth pursuing, worth experiencing. That life and life in abundance is true also for you. The gospel lifts up these people. But the gospel does another work too. It also tells another people that they should be humble as they come before the Lord, King of Kings. That they should realize that they have golden shackles. That all that they have, that they count a privilege here in this world, will fade. James is going to go back to this like three or four more times in this book. He's really intense in warning the wealthy. And I got to be honest. It's that second group that most scares me. Not that I'm scared of the wealthy, but that I recognize by comparison that as I look at Abuela Regina and the ways that she has endured in faith, I realize I'm not her. You know, there's a cliche you'll find all over social media. They'll say things like, I'm my grandparents' wildest dreams. Ever seen this on social media? It's usually people that are educated, have a good job, et cetera, et cetera. I am my parents' wildest dreams. I suspect that for many of us in this room, that's probably true, or at least some version of it is. I know that I am the only person to complete an undergraduate degree in my family. The entirety of my family on both sides of my family, the only person to complete an undergraduate degree. 
I didn't just complete an undergraduate degree. I completed a master's, and now I'm in a doctorate. Half of my family don't even know what that means. They have no clue. It's beyond them in some ways. In many respects, I am that second group. In many respects, I'm the rich person who needs to remember and be humble in my circumstances. I'll say one other thing about this. Franz Fanon, he's a really intense cultural critic and writer. He was a part of the Algerian liberation movement against France. He wrote a book called The Wretched of the Earth. If you read it, let me tell you, it will haunt you. It's really quite intense. But there's some valuable nuggets in there. Uh, when Algeria finally gained independence in its war against France, Franz Fanon wrote this book, and he was really concerned that the intellectuals, those who had been well-trained, would continue to perpetuate certain habits that the French had perpetuated in their oppression of Algerian poor farmers. And Fanon says to the elite, to the intellectuals, to the wealthy, the well-trained, he says, you will find yourself again. You will discover wholeness and completeness when you join yourself in solidarity into the struggle of the poor peasant. In fact, he says, you will be saved when you join yourself in solidarity in the struggle of the peasant. That's what Fanon's idea. And I can't help but think that Fanon is introducing something that we as Christians in some way, in some respect, already know. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised for those who love him. We already know that there's something saving about going through this test in solidarity. We know that, in fact, the gospel, the truth of the gospel, is that God is remarkable in his solidarity. Uh, John Sobrino and James Cone both agree on this point. Jesus died a victim. Jesus died a victim. Jesus lived such a life that was committed in solidarity to the marginalized, that both the religious and the social and political elite found his new way a threat, the way of his life dangerous, so much so that they crucified him. I love that the editors of the Bible put these two passages really close together. If you just flick back a couple pages, maybe in your Bible it's just one like mine, Flick back just a couple pages to Hebrews chapter 12. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, which include Cohn, Mammy Till, John Sobrino, Abuela Regina, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run, here's the word again, with endurance, it's translated in James, steadfastness. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who for, what's it say? The joy, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus did what James is now telling us to do. Jesus, in his solidarity with the marginalized, endured the greatest of pains, 
the most severest act of violence. Jesus, an innocent victim, stood in solidarity with the marginalized so that they might have the crown of life. Jesus endured that trial with joy, knowing that his sacrifice would be productive, that from it would be born a church. And in this church, there could be people that in solidarity join their lives to the weak, to the marginalized, bearing witness to the very work of Jesus in the world, trusting that Jesus' love is for all in humility, going in solidarity with the immigrants that were mentioned earlier, going in solidarity to those that do not have a Thanksgiving meal, joining those brothers and sisters in a low circumstance, knowing that they will be exalted, told that they have full dignity in the Lord and that we are saved together, that we become the body of Christ. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast in trial, because when they have stood the test, James says, they receive the promised crown of life. James, as one of the abuelos of the church, tells us why it is that our ancestors who have struggled much, why it is they can count it all joy. Because they know that at the end of their journey, that crown of life is theirs. He knows that for us, facing completely different circumstances, the one thing we lack, we can get from a God that loves us dearly. We can get the wisdom we need to navigate the struggles of our day. And he invites us to make a shift. He invites us to remember to be humble in our circumstances and to join the lowly, knowing that the Lord Jesus endured with them as a victim, that they might be saved, that we might be saved, and that together we might all have the crown of life. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.